0: This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Let FreshBooks take care of the numbers stuff so you can get paid doing what you love. As well as MailChimp, the easiest way to send email newsletters, connect with your audience, and grow your creative business. This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed hosts for the night were Tina Esmaker and Brad Smith. Enjoy the show.
1: So, Brad, it's kind of crazy that we're here hosting this show together. I met you a couple years ago.
2: That is that is true.
1: Do you remember how we met?
2: Um, I do. We were it was a it was a morning event, um, and uh, my company at the time we were hosting it, and I had I had known who you and Ryan were, and had never met you in person. So I walked up and introduced myself, and keep in mind it's very early. Um, and I'm
1: not a morning person at all.
2: And and you know I maybe was a little aggressive because I had had a lot of coffee. <laughs> so it's kind of like me walking up for the first time ever, like Tina ass maker!
1: By aggressive, he means I was sitting down, very groggy, like, "Ugh, why am I up this early?" And there's a man walking straight toward me, and I'm like, "What the? I don't know him, but he's clearly looking at me." And I'm like, "Do you? I don't know. It's and he's he's walking straight at me." So anyway, the story is I knew I knew Brad. We we were friends online, and his avatar at the time he had he he had this. He had this, um, like, costume nose. It looked like a dog nose. Does anyone, anyone know that avatar of Brad's? You know it obstructs his whole face. So I had no idea what he actually looked like. And, and I'd never met him in person. So, yeah, once he walked up and, and said, I'm Brad Smith. Nice to meet you. I was like, okay, you're not a creeper. Um, <laughs> I'll shake your hand. But it was still a little like, give me more coffee.
2: Yeah, so there was I sorry, my I left my phone up there intentionally. My watch is, I just got a Tinder match. <laughs> it just happened.
1: It'll have to wait. Um, <laughs> or sh- or should he go? What do you guys think? Should he know. leave? Are you here? It might be it might be Are the you one. Here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> she could be here, Tina. She
1: she could be here.
2: Um <laughs> She'll know. She'll know. Um So yeah, we we met that day, and then we ended up meeting again, like actual hanging out, um, right around the the hurricane, several years ago. Um, And then we we ended up uh, spending more time together, and I got to know Tina's husband, Ryan. I almost said your wife, that would be incorrect. (laughs) Ryan, who is running everything tonight. Um, it was New Year's, and we all went out. And it was that night that I realized that that Tina forgot who I was and needed to be reintroduced to me completely again. I think it was based on the amount of drinks, but Tina could probably tell the story a little you bit.
1: You mean better. when I said "Nice to meet you"? Yeah, she did. She
2: reintroduced um. <laughs> herself to me after knowing each other for a good four months. We got to meet all over again.
1: Yes. Yeah, Much so like the movie Groundhog Day. We should bring up our first guest. What it do you think? Full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's let's uh, bring up our first guest. Our first guest is a designer and writer based here in New York. Um, you might have seen his work. I have, yes.
2: <laughs> I, I actually owned his work, but I can't say what work I owned until you... you uh, I'm going to tell you. He okay. created
1: that iconic T-Rex skeleton cover from Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park.
2: I've, I've read the book. Yeah,
1: I think I think you... Oh, you've read the book. I haven't yeah. read the book. I've seen the movie, the movies. Um, he is... Uh, He um, is an associate art director at Knopf. He has also authored his own best-selling books. He has given two TED Talks, which have been viewed over three million times. Um, And he is the recipient of the National Design Award for Communications. Please welcome Chip Kidd. Welcome. Show's over.
2: Show is over. Oh
1: wait. Now there's a card down there. Is that you? Um. No,
3: that was an intentional card. Okay. Oh, okay. We're good.
1: I told you no surprises. We're
3: good. No, su- no surprises. <laughs> and by the way, I just got about like six scruff matches on my on my <laughs> list, so, so you know.
1: It's gonna have to wait, Chip. I know it is. But
3: I, <laughs> let's just put
2: things in perspective. Let's let's introduce an intermission, like a quick intermission.
1: Guys, so we need to take a break in ten minutes. Is that, <laughs> is that <laughs> enough time? Well, sh- we'll know
2: if she's here because. Hello. <laughs> it was a joke. She would have known where to go joke. with that. Joke.
3: So.
1: <laughs> Chip, thank you so much for thank kicking you. off the
3: show. Hey.
1: We are we are super honored to have you here.
3: Well, at least you think so.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see in about 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to start at the beginning of your story, mm-hmm. which is in Reading, Pennsylvania. Yes. Correct. Yes did a little research, just Mm. enough Um, tell me what it was like growing up there and
3: you know uh, it was like a typical um, suburban existence in the 70s uh, you know the cliche of the whole leave it to beaver thing Um, on on the literary side if any of you um, here have ever read uh, a series of books by a writer named John Updike um, called the Rabbit Books uh, blank stares, um...
1: There was someone nodding in the first Okay, <laughs> uh,
3: those are all specifically about where I grew up. Uh, John Updike's father was my father's math teacher in high school and uh so all of those books are about this very little village um outside of Reading called Shillington Pennsylvania which uh John Updike was just kind of obsessed with and uh wrote about it his entire career but it but to me it's so boring and dumb that uh <laughs> that t- i for Updike to make art out of this place is like a, a famous painter being inspired by the color beige. it just <laughs> it just makes no sense to me
1: um, was creativity a part of your childhood, or did yes. did you have any instinct that you would be doing what you're doing now?
3: Well, I didn't have any instinct that I would be specifically doing what I'm doing now, which is largely uh, book covers. You know, I, I, I'd be seriously troubled by a small child that wanted to be a, a book cover designer, say, in <laughs> third grade. But, um, but uh, I was always drawing, and my parents were... They, they were funny, because they had, like, day jobs. My dad was a chemical engineer, and my mom was a personnel manager. But uh, she was this incredible seamstress... And he just was handy and, and could, like, make anything. So when we were kids, we would just, we would, like, wish what we wanted to be for Halloween, and then they'd figure out how to help us make that. Uh, so, you know, and I was, you know, I was a, a third-grade Captain America, and it was Perfect. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> with the wings on the head, instead of those fucking things that Chris Evans has.
1: <laughs> a hero is born. Yeah. It was, I, it yeah. was you.
3: I, uh, I went as a California
2: raisin once, which would be pretty exciting, but then you realize that your entire costume is just a black trash bag filled with, like, padding.
3: so, Which is so weird, because I'm probably, you know old enough to, to, to be your older lover. But um, <laughs> but uh, when I was in sixth grade I was on the stage as a a, a dancing fig Newton. <laughs> and you're probably all too young to remember this was a commercial at the time for the for the Fig Newtons and uh, there was a dancing singing fig. And and so as there should be. Gooey, gooey rich and chewy inside. Nice and cakey, toasty, flaky outside. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Yeah, it was the great. show's
1: over. Take go, the go outside and in the date.
3: inside. What is it, good darn tootin'? It's a big fig newton. You heard it here. Such an easy audience. Yeah. I
1: know, they're really wonderful. We'll pay you all after the show. (laughs) Um, So, Chip, you went to Penn State. Yes. And you studied graphic design. Yes. Did you know, like, was there an aha moment when you said, ah, graphic design is it?
3: Yeah, very early on, and uh, quite seriously, uh, freshman year, I had this incredible guidance counselor uh, who said, you know, you have to stop dressing as a woman, and... To, to get along here? No. Uh, but, but you know, because I wanted to do something creative, I just didn't know what, and and they said, well, you know, there is this thing here at Penn State called graphic design. And uh, and I said, all right, well, that sounds interesting. And so I took introduc- introduction to graphic design, and the amazing thing to this day, the graphic design department at Penn State, this is a school on the main campus that has 40,000 students, like, running amok, uh... They admit 20 students a year into the program with three full-time faculty. So that was amazing, and uh, I, I loved it. I was just there two, two weeks ago, you know, doing a workshop. It's awesome.
2: Wonderful. Awesome. And so it was right after that, probably circa 1986, that yes. I believe that you moved to New York. Wow. Yes. Um, right? These hacks. Yes. Where did I get them? <laughs> the dark web. It's a thing. It is a thing. Um, And your first apartment, as the dark web told me, is a block from... Your was a block from here, right?
3: Well, no. You're wrong. Okay. Okay, so here's the thing. Do not trust the dark web. Well, it was 20 blocks from here. 20. And uh, in short, when I came to New York in the fall of 1986, I had a dear friend uh, named Barbara DeWilda, who is now uh, a, a graphic designer working at the New York Times, and we worked together forever. And she put me up at her semi-legal loft, uh, which was at South Tenth and Wife. So if you walked out of this building and walked 20 blocks to South Tenth, it is still there. And it's this totally unassuming factory-looking building with a faded yellow a uh, circle with ABC in it, and um, half of it was uh, a working textile factory, and then the three top floors were uh, lofts that they were renting out on the sly.
2: And I would say a 1986 Williamsburg is probably not the same as a today Williamsburg. Would
3: you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'd, agree, I'd agree with that. Um, it. W- I mean, it was... It, in some way I mean it was like it was great it was so it was so, like I don't know uh, it seemed like really pioneering um, and we had no heat we had 5,000 square feet and my share of the rent with two other guys was $389 a month yeah yeah you, you can all weep now uh, that's now called Ohio <laughs> And not much of Ohio, actually. Oh no, no, it's a small,
2: um, small section of Ohio. <laughs> really, really shitty parts of Ohio. It's right uh, by the, is, the insane asylum, like that corner block, like the neighborhood. That's, yeah, that's the but even,
3: seriously, even back then, it was like, this is the up-and-coming place. I'm like, yeah, right. Dodging the bullets. But no, not really. Um, I thought it was like the, in the future no, the, and
2: those were lasers. I didn't
3: realize. <laughs> now, no, this is a <laughs> like bad, bad, like, bad, maybe, gunplay, like, bad gunplay um, <laughs> imitation. But, but actually, no, seriously, it was in its own way, it was super safe because it, and to this day, I think it's probably true, it was mostly um, like Hasidic Jews and, and then the Latino community. And so, in that sense, it was kind of like West Side Story without any of the romance. <laughs> point point taken. And there Done. you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and lasers.
2: We had some lasers.
1: <laughs> so, I want to talk about your first job. Mhm. Um, you came here wanted to work for a big design firm. Mm-hmm. Interviewed with all of them. Yep. Didn't get a job offer. Correct. But you did get a job offer somewhere else. Correct.
3: Tell so so that. when I first came here, the really hot graphic design firm was called M & Company. It was, um, it was uh, run by a guy named Tibor Kalman. And I went there and I got an interview, but I was, and I was sitting there with my portfolio in the lobby, um, cause I was early or whatever. And I'm looking around and they had all of these posters for the talking heads up on the walls. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool. They like the talking heads too. And then of course I later realized that no, they designed all of them <laughs> and had this partnership with David Byrne and was like, oh my God, that that's all I wanted was to work at this place. And it's incredibly uh amazing uh firm that that all of these incredible designers now used to work at Stefan Sagmeister and Stephen Doyle and 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 uh lots lots of others. But um None of the places that I really wanted to work had an entry-level position. And then somebody said, you should go to Random House and try and get some freelance book cover work to tide you you over. And so I did. And this really sweet woman there, uh, Judy Lozer, was the art director of Vintage Paperbacks. And she took a chance on me and gave me a cover to design that was ironically for a book called How to Work for a Jerk. (laughs) Totally true story. And it was a self-help book for people who are trapped in a job where you hate your boss, but you can't quit. And so I did this tissue drawing comp. None of you know what that is, but um, (laughs) it's where you actually draw on a piece of tissue. (laughs) Uh, And I was so proud of it, and I presented it to her, and she said, well, that's... That's really amusing. I'll go upstairs and show it. And she came down in five minutes and said, "Well, <laughs> nobody liked it at all." So um, thank you so much and um, goodbye. Uh, but she, no, she was nicer than that. But there, but adjacent to her office was this woman uh, named Sarah Eisenman at the time, who was the art director of Alfred A. Knopf Publishing, whatever the hell that was. And uh, she wanted to see my portfolio, and I showed it to her. And she needed an assistant, and uh, I got very lucky. And two weeks later, she hired me.
2: So that's where it all began.
3: Yep. And, and you're I will still be. I will be there 30 years in October.
2: Wow. Um, wow.
3: We don't have an applause sign. It's okay, though. Bring yeah. it <laughs> up. Bring it up. Which is Good amazing. Work, which Good is work. amazing because I'm only 28. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Speaking of the 20s, um, not not the roaring 20s, but the, the age that we are, um, in, in, in our early 20s, a lot of us kind of have a, um, a plan for what our life is going to look like. I did not. I still don't. Um, but that's that's a whole other thing for my therapist and not here. Um, so let's let's actually, like, talk to the audience tonight. Um, what advice might you have for individuals that find themselves on a path that might not be the path that they plan for themselves?
3: Well, beca- the... the you know, you have to be open to um, to opportunities that you weren't really expecting or thought would lead to anything. And and I with this whole book designing thing, which which by the way, at at first it wasn't really book designing. It was. Being assistant to the art director, which meant, you know, all kinds of things that aren't really designing but need to get done. Like, you know, the, the front flap of a book, someone needs to set all that text and, and then reset it and reset it and reset it, you know, going through all the copy editing and what have you. It wasn't really for another good year and a half that I was actually doing any, what I would call, real designing, and that's, you know, that's par for the course. But the, the, really, the main thing is that you know it's great to be focused and say I want to do this and I want to I this is what I have in mind and to go for that. But if you're going for that and all of a sudden, ah, what's that over there? And um, you know, if I keep going this way, I'm gonna be. <laughs> hitting my head on a wall but there seems to be a path over here I didn't really want to be a book designer but let's give this a shot that's that's the only advice I can give I is think the, it's it, pretty
2: wonderful advice.
3: Well, you know I and I I think you know nowadays it's a whole other world obviously the web did not exist at, at the, this time when I was you know trying to figure out what I wanted to do and um, you just it's it's great to be focused but it's also great at the same time to be open to something else that might come along or an opportunity that 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 might happen. And and especially if you, you know, when you are in your 20s and you're like figuring all that stuff out and you know, it it's easier to be malleable and try new things at that time in your life than, you know. Then later on, right. but you may have to later on as well.
2: Of course, yeah, and I, I know I'm not paying you by the hour right now, so we can't get into this, but is that also possible in your late 30s?
3: How do you feel about that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you have become a go-to designer for a lot of well-known authors, and, you know, okay. don't act humble, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of awesome authors you've worked with, do you speak with the authors like during the process of designing? Mm-hmm
3: it all depends all the authors are different um some of them want to be extremely hands-on and some of them want me to just kind of like do my thing and then react to it um one of the authors that that i've been like privileged to work with for over 20 years and then currently working with is is haruki murakami and uh he's just he's just amazing uh as, as an artist, but also he just, um, he seems to like everything I do. Uh, so that's really helpful. <laughs> uh, but also the projects are so different. So his new book, which is coming out this fall, is conversations that he's been having with the conductor Seiji Ozawa. Uh, about music, and they so they've been like writing back and forth and 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 doing this for the past couple of years, and now it's a and now it's a book. So that that presents a completely different problem to solve and graphically than than his last novel, which was Carlos Suzuki Tazaki and his Years of Pilgrimage, and then One Q 84 before that, and etc. etc. So the the variety of his art is just so fascinating to me because. Um, I try in my work actually to not have a recognizable visual style. And so if s- the greatest compliment somebody can give to me is I saw this book and I thought it was it looked great and then I realized that you designed it and I never would have guessed you would designed it. And I, that's kind of like my whole personal thing great. that I really like. Great. Um, well, Daisy, so by the time you were in your, uh, your fifth adult film...
2: <laughs> wrong color card. <laughs> <laughs> wrong event. Blue cards, this event. White cards, other event. So, yeah, we will.
3: It was uh, my seventh, actually.
2: <laughs> wrong one. Um, in, in previous interviews, also I found on the dark web, um, <laughs> you've talked about a blank canvas syndrome.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I just want <laughs> you really kind of briefly to tell us a little bit about that, and then also, you know, what what do you do if you hit creative block? And if you say you don't hit creative block, I'm going to allow the audience to oh God. Throw things no. in your direction
3: hit creative block every five minutes. Um, well, the blank, the whole blank canvas thing is why this guidance counselor was so crucial in my life. Was was that I I am not what we call quote a fine artist, uh, which is to say. I am a I'm a designer, which uh, a graphic designer, which um, is about problem solving. So you, the client, or the you know whoever I'm working for, you tell me this is what we this is the problem. You know, Haruki Murakami has been uh, conversing with Seiji Ozawa for the last two years. They're talking about music, and now we're transcribing the, interv- the, the that back and forth conversation into a book. You have to give it a visual face that will hopefully attract attention to it. That's the problem. Like, that's great. Like, that, that works for me. Uh, as opposed to, here's a blank canvas, fill it. At which point I will sit there and I will stare at it, and then I will start to cry, <laughs> and then I will start to drink. I have infinite respect for people who are have the fire to fill that canvas the way they want to. Uh, uh, the, the last time I was saying I, there's one other time I've been in this room, which was a year and a half ago at the Brooklyn Comics Festival, because an artist named Raymond Pettibone was sitting where you are, and I was sitting where you are, and he's somebody that fascinates me. And I, you know, the idea of, of sitting and looking. Uh, at him talk about how he does what he does which is a completely different thing uh, fascinates me but it's not, that's not the way my head works uh, but th- the whole creative block thing you know we're here we are in this incredible city and that as as sort of Pollyanna maybe as it sounds or whatever, like that ultimately becomes the answer Uh that, okay, uh, you know, I've hit a, a, a wall and I just need to, like, forget about this for now and I'm going to go about my daily life and inevitably something will loosen up in, in, in the subconscious uh, about how to approach this thing or that thing that didn't seem apparent at, at first. And I, and I do think that being in a place like this has a lot to do with it. So there's hope. There's hope. No, I didn't say okay. that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's really good. Um, you've spoken before about the importance of generating your own content outside of client work. Yeah, which you've certainly done. You y- have have a day job, um, but you have you've you've done other work, other freelance work. You once started and played in a band. Mm-hmm. That's for another night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've written your own best-selling books. Right. So, so what makes it, or why do you think it's so important for us? to generate our own work outside of client work?
3: Because you have control over it, at least in as far as the creation of it. And what the difference between the whole blank canvas thing and sitting, which which is technically about visual art making, uh, a, a painting or a print or, or, or a drawing... Um, I have found that the, the, the self-created stuff that works for me is sitting down and, and writing. Uh, and, and, but again, you, in that sense, you have to give yourself a problem to solve. So for me, it was, okay, I went through four years of graphic design you, you know, uh, study at, at this state university... Um, which was an extraordinary experience and had all sorts of weird contradictions and crazy things. And I had two amazing teachers who could probably not function today because the trigger warnings would have destroyed them. Um, and I thought, let's see if we can turn that experience into, into a novel, into text. And so that was the problem that I sent uh, set b- b- ahead of me to write a book called The Cheese Monkeys.
1: Which we're going to talk about
0: later. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. Whether you're an experienced full-time freelancer or just getting started, FreshBooks can help you get organized and get paid faster. It really can. Speaking of getting paid, talking about money can be awkward. FreshBooks makes this a lot easier with customizable late payment reminders that go out automatically, meaning you don't have to feel like a bad guy constantly sending out emails. With FreshBooks, you can also bill your time hourly or at a flat rate per project. When you're all done, just a few clicks and you can create an invoice based on your log time and your hourly rate. Are you working on long projects or maybe have a client that's asking for work month after month? You can save time by setting up recurring invoices that automatically bill your client for you. And if you're getting ready to kick off a really big project, you can get paid up front with deposits so you aren't left strapped for cash or worried about bills mid-project. Let FreshBooks take care of the number stuff so you can get paid doing what you love. And don't take our word for it. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for TGD listeners, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash TGD and enter TGD Live in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Thanks, FreshBooks, for sponsoring the Great Discontent podcast. Now back to the show.
1: So we're going to bring up our second guest, and Chip is going to stay and hang out with us as well. Yes, Um, yes, yes. (laughs) our, our, uh, Our second guest is a freelance lettering artist and illustrator based in Brooklyn, She is part of Ghostly Ferns. Do you know what a ghostly fern is?
2: I'm going to tell you. Please tell me. Uh, Please tell me. Ghostly
1: Ferns is a creative family of freelancers who work for awesome companies. Um, Our our guest, her work has gained the recognition of notable clients, including Kickstarter, the Art Directors Club, Target, West Elm, Penguin Books, Adobe, and Pentagram. Please welcome Jen Musari.
2: Um, you're from Philadelphia? I am. I've never been, which is crazy.
1: Well, you should get on the train. I, I haven't either. Now. Is this are we confessing now? Yeah. Okay. It's
2: crazy, like it makes no sense.
1: You should. It's so close. It's
2: like I've been to Ohio, <laughs> it's but it's like
1: <laughs> right there.
2: <laughs> um, so so growing up, uh I've I've heard I've heard mm-hmm. um through the grapevine mm-hmm. just to bring it back to the California raisins there. Yes. Anybody gets that reference? All right. Yeah. Um, that uh, that your parents weren't didn't work in creative fields growing up, but they they had creative abilities. Yeah, um, sure. So yeah. so a couple mm-hmm. questions on that. Uh, one, can you read minds? Maybe. Okay. And two, knowing your parents th- were very creative but didn't work in creative fields, um, did they encourage creativity in the home?
4: Um, okay, so the story is that the creativity comes directly. There's, like, a direct bloodline from my grandmother. Grandmother, dad, me and my sisters, basically. We got it all. My cousins have it, too. So my mom's side, not so much. So <laughs> <if> <laughs> there was anyone who was... I mean, though, she really encouraged crafting. She was one of those, like... I grew up in the 70s hippie moms by accident. So she, like, composted all the time, taught us how to sew, and... You know, so we did a lot of crafting and stuff. But when I said I would like to go to art school, they panicked for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, so speaking of art school, mm-hmm. you went to Micah. I did, and you studied fine art to begin with, right? For th- a couple years. For three and a half and years it, out of four. <laughs> and in in a in a very <laughs> crazy turn of events, you switched your major to illustration in your very last semester. Yes. W- What's up with
4: that? <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happened was what happened was, basically I had planned to go into the fine arts world and I don't know why I was just convinced that this is the best outlet professionally for me. Um, I didn't really know what professions were out there. I just thought that you would have to make it because I had this idea of a life that I wanted to live in which I had my own schedule and made my own work basically. I didn't realize until a really fantastic teacher came to me that you can also do that in illustration and graphic design fields. And so there was a professor that I had. I'd kind of been sneaking into illustration courses, and I actually had snuck into a um, hand lettering course, which for some reason was being offered in the illustration department that I totally did not have the prerequisites for. And this guy named Joel Holland, it was the only class he ever taught at my school, Uh, was the first person I ever saw who was doing specifically just Lettering as a job and I was like why didn't anyone tell me I could do this (laughs) You know, I had seen his work on book covers I had seen his work on album covers and all sorts of applications I was like this is this is it like I can do this and he was a freelancer and I knew that that was like a life where I could have that sort of scheduling that I wanted
2: Excellent, excellent. Well, let's let's talk a little. I might know what it is, but I uh, bet a few people here do not. Let's talk about your first illustrating job.
4: Oh boy. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe we know about different ones. What?
4: Yeah, maybe. we might know about it, a different one. Is it weird?
2: One. Is it awkward? Do we I mean, need to run this? Like
4: no, no, it's not awkward at all. Okay. But it's kind of funny. I feel like when you're when you're that one weird kid in high school who's making art just for fun, like. Your friends who are in weird punk bands are going to ask you to do flyers and stuff. So I guess technically those might be my first jobs. But um, my first real job in which people actually interacted with the work was for a um, record label called Capitol Records. And this guy named Amos Lee, who, fun fact, is also from Philadelphia. His real name is Peter Massaro which is my last name, one but with letter. one letter off. <laughs> so he, his album cover was my first job. And I was supposed to just do lettering for it, and the art director was like, okay, okay, I'll give you this part of it. Like, we'll be fine. He got, uh, like horribly small amount of money for the amount of work I had done, but I didn't know any better.
2: Record labels, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Totally.
4: (laughs) It had (laughs) turned into a fully illustrated album cover because uh, Amos Lee didn't like the fact that his own picture was on it. And so my first job out of school was something that I had fully worked on. And um, for illustration, that wasn't really something we were taught to expect coming right out of school.
1: That's pretty exciting. So when you got that job, were you like oh man, I made it, Like I'm just going to be making bank. I mean, straight out of school, did you expect to be able to make a living solely from illustration or did you plan to do other work? Oh gosh,
4: no. So I graduated during the recession, which maybe some of you here have as well. Which It, it sounds was <laughs> like fun. <laughs> it was dark times. You already had a job. Yeah, it was particularly dark because I feel like a lot of our professors at the time were maybe like, trying to prepare us for doom, basically, but trying to be optimistic, because we were paying them a lot of money to teach us how (laughs) to be professionals. So so yeah, we were kind of prepared in a way that our professors really tried to give us a skill set that would enable us to be good freelancers, because they knew that that was the only option for us, was to be freelancers, because no one was hiring full-time illustrators at that time. And now we kind of take for granted that uh, BuzzFeed hires a lot of illustrators, like just illustration, not doing any design. Uh, Rockstar Games, all these game companies, there's so many options now for kids who are in school and graduating within the illustration department.
2: But you, you were a personal shopper for anthropology. I was, correct? Is yeah. That, is that true?
4: It's true. Okay, um, okay so retail. Personal
3: shopper yeah. for anthropology. Mm-hmm. You mean of the That's stuffed animals?
4: No, <laughs> well, they do have stuffed animals in their store, um, but this shop—and actually, a lot of people don't know this. This is just retail knowledge. But if you ever go into a store and there's someone specifically who looks like a little nicely, like nicer dressed than everyone else, and is a little more friendly and a little more casual, that's the personal shopper. So their job is to just—it's also
2: how to catch a predator. Sure. So. <laughs> like, It's the same.
4: (laughs) You want some Mike's Hard Lemonade? No. (laughs) Run away. (laughs) Yeah, so, and I mean, this is something that I feel like maybe wasn't talked about at the time, but a lot of us illustrators who were working at the time freelance had to have a part-time job working somewhere else to pay the bills, especially to live where I was at that point in San Francisco, so... Um, yeah, I I just needed financially that extra income or else I would not (laughs) have been able to survive. Yeah. And that's totally legit. That's a totally, um, fine and normal thing. If you're not full-time freelance successful, but you're trying to build your business, it's totally okay to have a part-time
1: job somewhere else, whether it's in your field or not. Yeah. You guys are both from Philadelphia or from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you know, and, um, When I emailed Jen to be a guest on the show, I told her that you were also going to be a guest, and she responded and said, Chip, is it... She said nothing bad. She said all good things. All caps. Lots of exclamation points. She said, he's my hero. She read your book, The Cheese Monkeys, in eighth grade. (laughs) Found out. (laughs) (laughs) You guys guys can do the math. Do the math later. Um, (laughs) Great.
2: So, if we want to reenact, you basically are working in anthropology and he's the nicely dressed man in the store. Um, like, I
1: was
4: 12, so I okay. wasn't working in anthropology. Ec- Long
2: 12. Long 12.
3: Decade. Long decade. <laughs> I was 57.
1: <laughs> so, Jen read your book. That's how she learned about art school.
4: Yeah, I had never heard of art school being a thing until I picked up the book. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I read about it and I was like, I need. I need this. Like wherever this place is, I. At this point, I had only. <laughs> right, um, I had only read fiction, you know, being a twelve-year-old person, up until that point. So it's always like, what is this fantasy land where like all this weird stuff happens? I need to go there. And then later, I realized it was real.
2: <laughs> yeah. It
3: was real. But uh, it was but it's interesting because Micah. Where, uh, which is Maryland Institute College of Art. If you that's don't know, that's where I went to school. Um, it's a bit different than 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 like Penn State because the the whole and I because I believe me, I've been to both places a lot. Uh, the thing about the thing about Penn State was that they wouldn't let you uh, ha- get a, a fine art degree, mm-hmm. a, B, a BFA. You could only get a BA, which meant that you you had to take all these other classes that, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have to, you you had to take math and biology and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, <laughs> but psychology, which I, that I really en- enjoyed mm-hmm. and really informed what I was doing and thinking about mm-hmm. in terms of the graphic design stuff.
4: Yeah, Uh I... W- Walked into the library. I mean, there was so much of that in that book that just really struck me, and I just loved that. It was, like, so revolutionary to me at that time. But basically what happened was I walked into the library, which was where my mom took me when she was sick of me, and we needed to (laughs) do something. So I read a lot at that time, and I had this tendency to pick the prettiest book covers as a kid, always, Um, and so she would try to get me to pick books that weren't pretty, like, she knew when I was taking things just for the cover. And I walk into our, like, crummy, 70s-built Marple Newtown library, and on the new releases shelf is this book that I've, like, never seen anything like it before. At that point, this design, and I had never really thought of design as being a thing also at that point, just, like, magnet. Just, I needed that. I took it home. I didn't even open it saw the like <laughs> fantastic work on the side. And when I did take it home and open it and devour it, I read your, your book flap jacket <laughs> description and I was like, Chipkid, esteemed book cover designer. I was like,
1: how do you get to be that? <laughs> that sounds great. It's so. a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to do a lot of interviews, get no callbacks and just settle for whatever job you can get. Apparently. <laughs> No, I
4: mean, uh, just that was really cool and really impacted me.
3: All right, well, all right. It, it, let me ask you a question. What did you think of the ending? Because <laughs> everybody hates it. That's, that's why I'm asking.
4: So I did read it at a very young age. Yes. And I just took it for what it was. I read it again as an adult and still was just like, yep, there we go. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I... <laughs> Very appreciative. I think it just
4: made such an impression on me that I couldn't have had it any other way. I didn't think at that point to criticize a book because I was younger.
3: That you're the kind of reader we want.
4: Cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, if you've ever heard a podcast before, you've likely heard of MailChimp. But it really is true, MailChimp is the easiest way to send email newsletters. If you're looking to connect with an audience or grow your creative business, you've got to give MailChimp a try. It's easy to set up. It's easy to use. There are flexible design options that make it so simple to create a great looking campaign. And let's say you're putting on an event in Chicago and you only want to email people that are from Chicago. MailChimp's powerful automation and segmentation tools make this easy with just a few clicks. Plus, with MailChimp's mobile app, you can manage lists, add new subscribers, send campaigns and view reports all while on the go. Getting started with MailChimp could not be easier. No expiring trials, no contracts, no credit card required. Just sign up and start emailing now. Go to MailChimp.com to create your free account today. Thank you, MailChimp, for supporting the Great Discontent podcast. Now back to the show.
1: So you guys have both had success in your careers, but I imagine that you've also had failures, right? I mean, everyone experiences failure from time to time. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Not too much. We don't want to get too dark. Um, Has there been a point in your career where you've felt really challenged or discouraged or afraid of failure? Um, If there's any specific situation or moment you want to talk about?
3: It was most of today.
1: (laughs) Well, I did Uh, ask you what you did earlier. um,
3: I, I... I do a, a lot of speaking at schools and and to students, and what I what I really do try to emphasize is that you know, I get stuff rejected all the time. Uh, and it it you know, it doesn't matter quote, who you are. If you're not taking the client there or if you're if, if you're not, you know they'll they may hire you because of who you are. But if you're not delivering what they want, they will tell you. I mean, and and boy, do they. And uh, and I look, I I deal with this all the time. And and I think uh, you know, a big part of it is um, sometimes I agree with them. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm I had a deadline and I had to send you something and I sent this and. <laughs> <laughs> Really hoped you would have liked it um, but then they call me on it, and I'm like, okay, and then i then you have to you know you've got to, to to completely rethink the whole thing and 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 then sometimes you you think that you have just really nailed it, hit it out of the park, you know whatever cliche you want to use, and they just don't and so uh really you know it what it comes down to is you have to somehow come up with a solution that, that is working for everybody. And, and it can, it can be really hard. And, um, and sometimes you just have to decide, you know, when to see other people, uh, you know, and break up. Uh, but, um, but it but it's a real thing that everybody has to deal with and and you you really genuinely do have to look at a rejected creative solution as an opportunity to start over and do something better and and there are a couple of of instances what well, couple a ton where where I'm actually glad that I'm sent back to the drawing board has painful and and uh you know, irritating as it can be. um, A couple of uh, book covers that I did for David Sedaris were were exactly that, where I'm just like, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be this, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. It's like, no, 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 no. And then, ah, okay, Mm -hmm. this one's finally working. So I don't know. I mean, you must deal with that all the time.
4: (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also a big fan of compromise, especially with clients. I feel like any ground that we can get to where we're all kind of mostly satisfied is like, yeah, let's definitely go there. I'm also like a super optimist. So that's, you know, where I try and be all the time is like mildly good, like pretty okay, medium chill. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's a great, that's a great place to be. Um, so I try, and th- I really try to take the word failure with like a lot of caution. Um, because I feel like Coming out of school at a time where there was a lot of failure going on in the world at large, um, we tried to keep like a personal integrity that would push through that. And so when I see words being used, uh, failure to mean like um, experiments that went wrong or a part of the process that didn't quite go through all the way that we had hoped it would, I try and really say instead like, okay, yes, this is an opportunity to work through it. But also, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, okay, failures are really big to me with that mindset, right? So with, when I have this mindset, to me, a failure is like a startup company that took $4 million and can't pay it back. Or like a person who hired four people and cannot pay them and need to let them go. And like to me, if I were ever in those positions, I would feel like a failure. But I'm in a super lucky position where I'm my only employee I make as much money as I want to. Freelancing is really great for that if you're that type of person. And so with that optimism, I try and really um, adapt to challenges as they come up and maybe not use the word failure unless it's, it's a, a real big thing.
3: <laughs> well, and per- perspective is, is good. Like, you know, my rejected cover for Mary Roach is not the same as our invasion of Iraq, in terms of a fucking failure, So keeping it real, you know, it real. it's like, okay, let's just all calm down and, and keep things in perspective.
2: That's a, that's a fantastic point. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of change the tone a little bit, uh, let's talk about heroes or people you admire. Uh, I'm going to ask both of you so you both get to answer on this, but if you were to meet somebody, a hero, somebody you admire, somebody that might be sitting right next to you. <laughs> um you know what what would you what would you say to them and one caveat is neither of you can answer brad or dina oh, like sorry guys cannot oh. be the answer oh, well, to tired. the question <laughs> um, so if we just need to skip the question i understand but we would really like to hear from you maybe these guys would too i don't know um heroes people you admire what would you say to them if you met them
4: i have a few heroes i feel like they're mostly in music I grew up with a lot of music in my house, so I feel like if I met David, Debbie Harry, I'd probably just be like, I love you. <laughs> so that's what I would say.
2: Great. <laughs> it's
4: just,
1: so just
2: eloquent. Like that. Yeah. It is.
3: It arms is. Um, I'm older than you. Uh, I've, got, I've got so many different um, ideas about this concept, because I have many heroes. And there is this cliche... Of, be careful about meeting your heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've I've had these experiences over the years across the gamut. From I just and I I'm not really going to name names, but but there a, a certain person, a musician, who I worshipped, mm-hmm. who then actually asked me to work, do some work for them. And they just turned out to be an asshole, and it was just like, "Oh my god, you know, I just, I can't, uh, I can't even, I can't even listen to your music anymore. This is horrible." And then, every, but then the opposite end of the spectrum of somebody like, and and like in the comic book world, like Frank Miller, who who was just so amazing to me. Also, because he wanted me to work for him, and it was it was just fantastic. And then and then the gamut all the way in between. The thing I, that I would recommend, uh, if you can, is to is to try and meet your heroes and at least introduce yourself while you can. Like the like, some of the few regrets in life I have are not making an effort to to just go out to the West Coast and try and meet Charles Schultz, which uh which it turns out was eminently doable if you knew what you were doing. Like you could, go, you could go to that ice rink that he built and hang out at the cafe there and meet him because he would come into it every morning. And I only found this out later when I was working on books about him. Uh, so that I, I do regret. Um, so, you know, but here, and, and then one of my other great heroes who I did, have gotten to meet and and uh, is is a really interesting person is this guy named Peter Saville who was the um, art director for Factory Records who did Joy Division and New Order and and all these groups that I just loved in in college and and that the tremendous inspiration of that for me was I loved the design and I loved the music and it all sort of came together in this crazy fantastic way and and then when i got the job at canof i was really striving to do the same thing for somebody like gabriel garcia marquez was like oh my god i love your writing so much i want to make a piece of visual art for you that's going to that's going to honor what you've, what you've done in the text. So, I don't know, I'm, I've gone completely off topic, but the the whole heroes thing, it, it, it's interesting, because uh, I think it's important to have them, it's important to understand why you think they are heroes, you know, Obama is a hero, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, that's, that, that's on a whole other level, because it, it's not about art, it's about leadership, and uh, and how great he is at it. And I hope I have not met him. And I, and I was like, I need to figure out how to make that happen, you know, after he leaves his job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm blathering on. But I, it's worth, like, if, you know, if you love Debbie Harry and she's making an appearance somewhere, you should make an effort, because I'll bet she's actually really great. Uh, yeah. uh, th- that's just the vibe you get from her, you know, as opposed to this other person that I was... <laughs> Yeah, so guys, thank you so very much for coming out
2: tonight, and really everybody for, for filling this room. Um, this is so much more than what we could have hoped for, and this is only the, the first of many. And for everyone listening at home, thank you for having us in your living rooms, or that sounds really weird, so we won't even say that. But um, <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Um, We're it's jealous wondering- you have a
3: living room.
1: <laughs> and uh, we want to say thanks again to White Hotel for hosting us and our friends at MailChimp for partnering with us to make this happen. Um, We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) This episode was produced by The Great Discontent and me, Benjamin Welch. I also did the ad music. The Great Discontent features conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.